Well, friends, uh, for the last few months, we have been walking through the book of James. So if you're just joining us this week, we've been uh, walking through the book of James for a few months. James is uh, intensely focused on what authentic Christianity actually is. He's taught us that authentic Christianity is hearing and receiving and believing the word. But he's also been emphasizing this notion of we not only hear, we not only receive, we not only believe, but we also do the word. We actually live out the word. Authentic Christianity, in other words, is uh, is not assuring the pollsters and otherwise religious Christian friends that we're Christians going to church when it's convenient. No, no. Christianity, friends, is being born again. That's what we're learning. Christianity is being born again. It's illustrated in a new life, a life no longer conformed to the old man, but instead conformed to the new man. A life can not conform to the world, but to the world to come. In other words, what we're learning is that Christ changes a person's life in his entirety. The way they believe and the way they live. In fact, we saw last week from chapter 3 verse 14 uh, that if you go on living a self-centered life, uh, yet taking the name of Christ, James told us last week, then just stop calling yourself a Christian. James doesn't hold any punches back. We've been seeing, James has been teaching us that Christians are not partial. They don't kind of particular one, pick one particular group and neglect another. Christians bridle their tongues. They're not destructive with their tongues. We've learned that faith without works is dead. In other words, guys, James is aware of this thing called hypocrisy in the church. And if you're aware of that and wondered what the church thinks, I hope you're encouraged to know that the Bible's not okay with it. James is not okay with it. James has little patience for this hypocrisy in the church, as does the Lord. Either be an authentic Christianity, or either be an authentic Christian, or just stop calling yourself Christian altogether. And this morning, those same two themes uh, come out again. Two clear points this morning from the passage. Resist fleeting pleasures, and then draw near to pleasures forevermore. We'll take that first one. Resist fleeting pleasures. You can see where I'm getting that word from, uh, that word resist from verse 7 there, where James says to resist the devil and he will flee. But we look as we scan through this passage, we see that we should not only resist the devil, we see in verse 4 that we should resist being friends with the world. And as we saw last week, we also read in verses 1 to 3 that we should resist our own selfish passions. So resist the passions of the flesh, resist being friends with the world, resist the devil and draw near to God and find everlasting exaltation. That's the big idea of this passage. Now I realize that when I say these things, it may sound like some kind of fire and brimstone sermon at some revivalistic service. But friends, hopefully you're seeing that I'm drawing this straight from the passage that we're looking at. And so let's begin with those first few verses there in James chapter 4. Uh, if you're new to the way that we preach here, let me invite you just to open up that Bible that's right in front of you. Look at it. It'll help you as we walk right through the passage. So again, looking at those first few passages. Uh, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, James asks? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Within you meaning within your hearts. And that word for passion there in verse 1 is the same place we get our word hedonism. Hedonism, the word for pleasure. And so James is saying the reasons for fights from without is because of the desire for pleasure from within. 
The reason for fights from without is because of the desire for pleasures from within. This is the heart of the problems with the world, James would teach us. Just as he said last week about the wisdom from below in chapter 3, verse 14, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition come from the heart. James is teaching us he understands the engine driving disagreement, destruction, and fighting is in the human heart wanting pleasure for the self to the neglect of God and neighbor. The problem with the world is individualistic hedonism, is James' answer. The very cocktail that we are served every day in 2022 America. People neglecting the pleasure of God and the good of neighbor for the aim of indulging personally defined pleasures. So for instance, if you and James were, let's say, watching CNN, watching the news coverage on the war in Ukraine, and the commentators, let's say you're watching it and the commentators are there trying to bounce around why Putin is doing this. James would say to you, I can tell you why he's doing this. At the bottom of it, he has passions at war within his own heart. He desires Ukraine and does not have it, so he fights. He doesn't ask God, which is to say, James would say to us, he doesn't even pray. And if he does pray, he asks wrongly to spend whatever God gives him on his own passions, his own pleasures from within. I think James would probably have the same diagnosis on every other major point of disagreement in and around our society. At the bottom of it all, every person fights because they want to be able to pursue their own personal pleasure with little or no regard for God or for the good of the neighbor. But of course, as we think about this passage, James is not writing to the world per se. He's writing, as we know, looking at the beginning of this book, he's writing to the Christian dispersion. He's writing to people that understand themselves to be Christians. So James, the doctor, as it were, is uh, talking to the Christian patient, as it were, walks into his office. And the Christian patient is having all kinds of troubles in their life, left and right. And when the patient asks him, why is all this fighting going on in my life? Why is all this tension in my life? James, the doctor, provides the diagnosis. He says, your heart wants personal pleasure more than you want pleasure from God or the good of your neighbor. Dr. James, as it were, would say to the patient, that's why you fight so much with other people. That's why you're friends with the world. And that's why you play into the devil's hand every single time. You live for your own personal pleasure. So if we were to ask the question, uh, why did that church split? Why did that pastor have that hidden affair or embezzle money from the church? Why did that church or those or those Christians reject that historic doctrine? Why did those Christians get a divorce? Why did that pastor get fired? Why are those group of people who understand themselves to be Christians fighting with this other group of Christians? There's all kinds of layers to these things. But James is saying at the bottom of it all, one or both of them are being driven by personal pleasures, not God centered pleasures. That's the bottom. Bitter jealousies and selfish ambitions continually carrying along the heart until it gets what it wants. Or as one author has taught us, you are what you love. Well, having seen Dr. James' diagnosis of the problem, let's get some more help by seeing how a person taking the name of Christ yet living for their own personal pleasure, let's see how it actually plays out on the ground, right? Let's see what this looks like in real life. Once again, you're going to see those three great enemies that we talked about last week there in the passage. You see the flesh, you see the world, you see the devil. 
Uh, we'll, ta- we'll take each of them as James gives them to us. So first off, let's think about the way uh, living in the flesh looks like. Our personal passions, those personal pleasures. James teaches us that inside of us all is a war. If we are aware of spiritual warfare at all, we often tend to think, don't we, that the warfare is sort of out there and that person over there, this group of persons over there. We rarely think that the war is down in here in our own hearts. The fundamentalists of old would tell us that the problem with the world is TV or songs or music or liberal colleges or government. All of which, of course, are problems at some level because they are in the world. But what the fundamentalists of old failed to account for is that we only seek those things uh, out because our hearts, apart from Christ, want those things. The porn industry, drug and alcohol abuse, structural injustices, and abortion. Friends, would all cease tomorrow if people started wanting what they are selling. As we said last week, until the heart is first pure, it can only then be made peaceable and full of good fruits. We think about when Jesus got into arguments with the Pharisees. What was the problem? But in the differences, those two people were seeking to derive their pleasure from. The Pharisees loved the power, the praise and the privilege that they drew from the people while using the name of God. The whole reason why they sought to take Jesus down was because he was taking the personal pleasures away from those Pharisees. Even though, again, they they claimed to believe in God. And friends, the same goes for our arguments. Think about that last argument maybe you had with your spouse. Think about that last argument with a roommate. Or think about that sinful disagreement maybe you had with a church member. I'm sure you had some principle that you were arguing for that you believed was right and still do. More often, though, sinful anger or that argument came because one or both of you had a desire that you did not have something that you desired. You didn't have it and you wanted it. And you, while you didn't literally murder them in that argument, you wanted to wound that other person, didn't you, with your unbridled tongue or your anger in order to get that thing that you desired. You did what you did or you said what you said in order to acquire a particular action that would satisfy your interests. Could be maybe your respect. It could be some kind of uh, satisfaction that you were kind of aiming at. Maybe you just wanted to win the argument. But there was something you wanted and you were willing to wound, murder in order to get it. Maybe, for instance, one parent wants little Johnny to go to bed at 7. The other parent wants little Johnny to go to bed at 8. You discuss it, but you can't come to an agreement. What happens? An argument ensues. You desire and do not have, so you murder. That is, fighting and quarreling ensues and you murder, or you wound again with your words or with your actions. You threaten, or do you deliver a sharp accusation? Sinful anger begins to rise to the fore. The words always and never come up a lot when these arguments come on, don't they? What's going on there? What's happening in those moments? Well, you'd say it's because you want little Johnny to sleep at a certain time for his well-being. And at some level, I'm sure that's true. But really what James is teaching us down deep is you desire and do not have. That's not to say, of course, that the sleep schedule is unimportant. But it is to say that our personal desires can often hide behind otherwise well-intentioned requests. We desire and do not have And so we murder, we fight, we quarrel. 
Or let's use another instance. Or you say you, you want you say you want to overcome greed or sexual immorality, and yet you never ask God in prayer about it. Or maybe you do, but it's a passive or flippant request, like Augustine's prayer of old: "Lord, make me pure, but not yet." Not a wartime plea for reinforcements to defeat a surrounding enemy. And so the problem persists. You do not have because you do not ask God. Guys, you've heard me say this before, but one of the first questions I ask when people come into my office because they're dealing with some kind of a problem and they need help, which I'm so glad they do. One of the first questions I ask is, How's you, how are you praying about this? And often, often, the answer is, not much, or rarely, I could do a lot better. Beloved, God ordains the means of things as well as the ends. Yes, he can stop things in an instant, but he tells us to abide in him that we might bear much fruit. One of the critical means that we abide in Christ is through prayer. And so I ask you this morning, if you aren't praying, then why would you expect to live in the power of the gospel? Why? You do not have, as James says, because you do not ask. Don't expect to see the change you want to see if you aren't regularly and specifically going boldly to the throne of grace to pray to God. As a church, we got to grow here, guys. We got to grow in this part of our life together. More on this when we get to chapter five. But for some of you, some of you do pray. But you do not have, James says, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Beloved, do not expect God to fund your idolatry. If you are praying for a spouse, a job, a possession, or some kind of change with no regard for either the supremacy of Christ, the greatness of Christ, the glory of Christ, or the good of your neighbor, you're not really aware or caring much about either of those things. You just want that thing that you're praying for in order to bolster your own personal passions. Well, that's funding idolatry. And so God then loves you enough to not answer that request in the way that you're asking because he knows it'll harm you. Because he loves you. If my kids were to come up to me and say, Dad, can I have a bike? Right? Bikes are good. Bikes are fun. Love bikes. All four or five are in favor of bikes. But if I know my kid's asking for a bike so that he can ride that bike down to his friends, they're going to inform him and lead him to do harm, then I'm not going to give him the bike. Even though bikes are fine and bikes are good things, right? So in the same way it is with the Lord. He will not give us what we want if he knows that request is going to be spent on our own personal passions to the neglect of his greater passion for his glory and our eternal joy. I want to be clear about something when I say that. That's not to say you should not conclude that every single unanswered prayer means that you're praying for something wrongly. But James teaches us it can be, it might be. Friends, God loves you enough to not answer the prayer that is offered in bad faith, just like any good parent would. 
And so the point is, as we think about flesh, kind of what it looks like, flesh on the ground, uh, the point here is, is while in Christ we are free from the guilt and condemnation of the law, while we are able to choose that which is right, while it is true that Christ reigns as the Lord of our hearts, listen, the old man still wages war on our souls. The old man has lost, but he still fights. We are justified in Christ, but in the strength of Christ, we must still work out what he has worked in us. Our flesh, guys, dies hard. This is the work of spirit-empowered, grace-fueled sanctification. This is disciplining ourselves for godliness, as Paul says. Unless we seek to resist personal pleasure as the compass of our decision-making, we should, res- we should expect nothing more than fighting, disappointment, and regret. Friends, if you don't know this already, Christianity is a terrible hobby. It's a terrible hobby. And if all of this, friends, is true of our flesh, it is definitely going to be true for our friendliness to the world. What does that look like? We see there in verse 4 where James transitioned. He says, you adulterous people. Note the exclamation mark there. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? That word means hostility with God. Therefore, whoever wishes, that's a key word there, so you want to circle that word. Whoever wishes to be friend, a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You wish to be a, a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So guys, I know this pull, this friendship with the world. I know this pull. I know this pull. I am not removed from it. Maybe I'm hanging out with a group of people that are not Christians and the conversation turns to something that's kind of controversial of some nature. What's the temptation in those moments? Two things, at least. One, you don't speak up, right? Or two, you might speak up kind of gingerly about that thing that's controversial in some way, but you do so quickly, quickly, quickly saying, but yeah, but I'm not like those Christians over there. Right? You don't want to be seen as weird, right? Or students, those of you that are in school in some capacity. You're in class and the teacher begins talking about something blatantly misrepresentative of Jesus, his gospel, or the church. What do you do? You don't speak up, right? You don't want to be weird. You don't look weird in that moment to your classmates, to the teacher, and the like. Or maybe you're on a company trip with your coworkers and you've only got one car. You're all driving together and they all want to go to the club or watch a movie that is blatantly objectifying women or rejoicing in wrongdoing of some kind. And you know that if you ask them to drop you off or if you stand outside for the entirety of those activities, you know you're going to look weird. You don't want to look weird, so you don't say anything. And maybe you go in. You know you shouldn't. Maybe there's even part of you kind of wants to go in. Or maybe you pursue a romantic relationship with someone you know is not a believer. Or maybe they say they are, but they have no meaningful fruit in their life. Or maybe you listen to the music or watch the movie that is littered with crude joking, vulgar speech, and or uh, sexual immorality. And you watch it because you know everybody else is watching it, talking about it. You kind of would like to too. You want to be able to talk about it around the water cooler as such. Or maybe you kind of fudge the numbers on your sales report so you can get that bigger raise. Or while you wouldn't personally participate in that thing, you go on to approve of something that God clearly says is wrong. Because if you don't, you'll stand out as looking like one of those, you know, religious nuts over there. 
Beloved, I've been in every single one of those scenarios. I know that pull to be friends with the world, to want to fit in. I know this pull to be friends with the world. And listen, I, as your pastor, have zero desire, zero desire to be part of some culture wars and be some cultural revolutionary. I got no interest in that. I just want to follow Jesus. I just want to get home. I just want to make disciples that help people know and love Jesus together so we can help each other get home. That's all I want to do. I want to do as Paul says to, uh, to us in his word. I, I just want to be like those that lead a peaceful and quiet life. But I'm not going to do it at the expense of my king who gave his life for me. I'd like to fit into the world just as much as anyone. I don't want to be seen as an alien. But here's the stubborn reality, guys. We are aliens. This is not home. Not as it is. The stubborn reality is we are aliens. Therefore, if you wish, if you wish to be a friend of the world, James says you are wishing to be an enemy of God. Even if you say Christ is the Lord. There's no middle ground here, guys. No middle ground. Remember what James told us back in chapter 1. There's no room for double-mindedness. If you ask for something good, he won't give it if you're going to be double-minded about it. There's no room for a middle ground here. Wishing to fit into the world or trying to be friends with the world is not only being an enemy of God, but James also tells us that it's adultery. It's like being married to Jesus and skipping by the Motel 6 each night for an hour romp with Satan. The mission of the world, beloved, has different goals and aspirations than the mission of Christ and His church. They don't play on the same team. And Scripture could not be any more clear about this. Romans 12, 2, right? Do not conform to the patterns of the world. We can think about uh, Demas in 2 Timothy 4, 10. Demas, Paul tells us, out of love for this present world. He's out. He's gone back to Thessalonica. Same, by the way, for Judas. He's gone. He loved this present world. He's out. He's off the team. In the city of Philippi, Paul says that there are people whose God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. You all know John, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But, of course, Jesus, as he always does, says it best. You can't serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Beloved, we live in the world, but we are not of the world. We seek the good of Christ in the world by neither participating in or approving of anything that defies the good and gracious will of our Savior. That's how we love Christ and love our neighbor, by approving of what God says is good even if people would disagree with it. Friends, the, the world is endeavoring to fuel your personal passions. That's what the world wants to do. It wants to fuel your personal passions, not kill them. And the same, of course, is true of the devil. That's the third thing that James mentions. Same is true of the devil. The devil is said to be a liar, a deceiver. You need to know, the devil hates you. He hates you. But he will pose as your best friend. He will position himself as your close friend. And he schemes against your discipleship every single moment of the day. 
including this moment right here. Nathan, he's an idiot. What in the world does he know? Maybe I am. But is this what God is saying? The way he deceives and hates you is by dangling out in front of you the acquisition of all of your personal pleasures while convincing you God doesn't want your joy. That's exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden. Exact same thing. Don't look at all these other trees, Adam and Eve. Look how good that one is. And if he wouldn't have you to have that one, why can you trust him? Go ahead, eat of it. Go ahead, eat. God's against you. You can be like him, knowing good from evil. Go ahead. Paul says that he and his demons disguise themselves as apostles of Christ and promise you Eden all the while they're leading you out of Eden. One old saint says that they present the bait and hide the hook. They present the golden cup and hide the poison. They present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit while hiding the misery that follows sin. And James says, resist him. Resist him. Did you notice the force of the word there and resist him? He doesn't say, you know, try to not, you know, don't dangle around. Don't hang out with those guys. You know, they're not bad guys. Just don't eat lunch with them. That's not what he says. He says, no, resist them. Get away. Resist him and he will flee. Too many times, guys, we try to manage our sin instead of mortifying it. James is using the language of warfare here, beloved. Of warfare. And yet, we so often live, myself too, we so often live as though it's peacetime. The flesh, the world, the devil, one little compromise at a time. They are preying upon your personal pleasures in order to lead you to everlasting misery. While too often we are casual about these warnings. We don't resist. We sort of, you know, we do our best. We act as though our hearts are living in a neutral world, watching neutral movies, watching neutral neutral news programs with neutral friends, reading neutral books with our heart generally neutral, and then we're surprised at where we find ourselves 5, 10, 20, 30 years later. Friends, the bad news is Satan is powerful. The world is pervasive and powerful, and our sin dies hard. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. The gospel and our king are more powerful. All authority is Christ's. Jesus will lose none that are his, not one. James 6 says that none can snatch them out of his hand. We find in this passage that there's more grace in him than there is sin in us. Hallelujah for that. So brothers and sisters, don't flirt with the fleeting pleasures of the world. Resist them. And then second, draw near to pleasures forevermore. Draw near to pleasures forevermore. Take a look at verse 5. It teaches us there that the Lord yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. In other words, he, he intends to do something about this warfare. God wants more for us, not less, more. He wants more pleasure for us, not less pleasure. So this self-centered life aiming at personal pleasure produces a world of disorder and violence. That's what James just said, chapter 3, verse 16. The self-centered life aiming at personal pleasure produces a world of disorder and violence. Guys, it describes so much of what's going around us in the world today. But the Lord never gives up on what he made very good. Indeed, as Jesus promised, he is making all things new. 
And you ask how? How is he making all things do? Well, by the person of Christ himself, by his finished work on the cross, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You then ask, all right, well, if that's what he's working it through, the person and the work of Christ, how does that get in on me? How might we live in the power uh, that has already been given to us in Christ? How do we how do we live in the victory that is already ours? How do we resist the devil and make him flee? Verse 8, your answer. By drawing near to God. Knowing that he has, or he will, and he has drawn near to us. Guys, that's a promise. Claim that one. Live in that one. By drawing near to God, knowing he will, because we, we can trust based on past grace, he already has drawn near to us. Look up there in verse 6 again. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we turn from pride to humility when we turn from sin and to the Savior. And there we find no fleeting pleasure, but an everlasting pleasure in the presence of God. God's so happy to draw near to us. And when we come to him and he comes to us, we find in his presence forever joy, forever pleasure. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Don't play with popcorn and slushies. Go to the source and find pleasure forevermore. And we see this drawing near to God and him drawing near to us in this pleasure that comes. We see this in the story of Zacchaeus. Y'all remember the story of Zacchaeus? You've got a little song in your head right now, don't you? <laughs> Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's known by the entire community as a sinner. So that, literally, that's, that's what Luke says. He's just known. There's the sinner guy. That's Zacchaeus. He's, he's probably, Zacchaeus is probably going door to door with a smile on his face, greed in his heart, and extortion on his mind. This guy had caused more harm to the community than most. The fleeting pleasure of wealth had been the driving motivation of his life until he drew near to Jesus. Until he drew near to the Lord. Right? Y'all know the story, right? Crowds pressing in. Zacchaeus does everything he can to get near to Jesus. So he climbs up in a, yep, tree. Jesus sees him in the tree and invites himself over for dinner. And after that encounter, after that encounter that Zacchaeus has with the Lord, as Zacchaeus drew to the Lord and the Lord drew near to him, they come together in fellowship. After drawing near to the Lord Jesus, Zacchaeus then walks in repentance, doesn't he? He humbled himself and he found grace and it changed his life. He repaid all that he had taken from, uh, that he'd done wrong to, and he, and, he, and he repaid, not because he was trying to pay off his sin. No, no, only Christ could do that, but because he found a greater and more lasting pleasure in the Lord Jesus. He didn't need or want their wealth anymore. He now wanted the good of his neighbors. That's what repentance is. It's selling it all in order to gain the everlasting pleasure of the Lord Jesus Christ. His laughter had turned to mourning and his joy to gloom. And therefore the Lord, quoting the passage here today, the Lord will exalt Zacchaeus. But it all began, how? By his resisting the devil and running to the Lord. No neutrality. No just sort of sitting there hoping it all works out. It came by him coming to the Lord. Running from sin. Running to the Savior. 
humbling himself before him. Grace met him. We find that it leads other sinners, like in the passage it teaches us, it leads to sinners to cleansing their hands and purifying their hearts. It leads to mourning and weeping. It leads us to turn from joy to mourning. Now, some of you ask, wait a minute, Nathan, I thought you said everlasting pleasures. Mourning, be wretched, joy to mourning? What's going on here? How is this everlasting pleasure? Well, friend, James is painting a picture of repentance. That's what he's doing. Go back to that story of Zacchaeus. Let's try to imagine Zacchaeus a few days before he drew near to the Lord. Try to imagine the days before Zacchaeus humbling himself and drawing near to the Lord. Imagine walking through the town of Jericho and poking your head into the swankiest bar in Jericho. We're going to call it the Jericho Jewel Bar. All right? We walk over there, and there's the door to the Jericho Jewel, and we look inside of the Jericho Jewel, and there we see Zacchaeus and all his pals, and they're hanging out. They're laughing. They're cutting up. They're having the greatest time. Right? They're sitting around, just lounging around in their couches while everybody else around them works hard in the city in order to pay those taxes that he's going to collect. And they're laughing it up, Zacchaeus and his boys. And again, all these servants around them are working their fingers to the bone. And Zacchaeus and the boys, are they're laughing at these servants to a degree, knowing it is their hard-earned money that is paying for dirty wine. Makes us angry, doesn't it? To Think about those guys. Zacchaeus before he draws near to the Lord. Makes us angry. Zacchaeus and the boy should be living in jail, not in luxury like this. They need to be sobered along the lines of Jesus walking into the temple and turning up the tables on those that were profiting off of God's money. That's what ought to be happening there in the Jericho Jewel, but that's not what's happening, right? Their laughter should be turned into mourning and their joy should turn to gloom knowing what they had done. So by the grace of God, This is what happened to Zacchaeus. When he resisted sin, drew near to the Lord, humbles himself, no longer is prideful, humbles himself and submits himself to God. He draws near to the Lord Jesus Christ. He found grace, pure, undistilled grace that was greater than anything else he'd ever tasted. And that grace led to repentance in the form of faith in Christ that led to works that illustrated him being born again. And he went back and made all that all right that he had done wrong. That's what faith and repentance do. It brings about righteousness. It brings about justice. It brings about good works. It gives grace because it's received abundant grace. Our hands and our heads, right, have been made clean at the fountain of Christ. There's no more pride, but only humble submission to the lordship of Christ who makes us new. And this new life is the everlasting pleasure that we were made to live for. Friend, I don't know if anybody's ever told you of that, but Christ is not against your joy. He's for it. He just knows you've been seeking for it in all the wrong places. And he invites you to find it in himself. Live for joy, just not for the lesser ones. Go to the fountain and find it in him. Repent of all those past times in which you've tried to find it in all the wrong places and come to it and find him. And when you do, life will not necessarily be easy this side of heaven, but you will be glad you did when you get home. That you gave it all to him because he's worth it since you see that he gave all to you at the cross. One pastor tells the story of a man that had an entire community that was praying for him. That they would be kind of like Zacchaeus, that they would repent of their sins. They had been running in all the wrong places. This community of faith had been praying for him for decades, literal decades, true story. They'd been praying for him until one Sunday they see him show up at church. 
And then at the end of the service, they begin to play the song. I don't know what the song was. Maybe it was Jesus paid it all. And down he came to the aisle. Down the aisle towards the front. They played that hymn. The church watched him walk forward. This man was humbling himself and drawing near in spirit and in body. He had given his life to Christ. But when this old man tasted the pleasures of the grace of God and the gospel, it led to tears. And he began to say through those tears after he'd walked that aisle, I've wasted so much of my life. I've wasted it. I've wasted it. And yet for him, it wasn't too late. Just like it wasn't for Zacchaeus. It wasn't too late. He was able to see the fleeting pleasures of this world in light of the forever pleasure of Christ and his gospel. And so this is the call from God's word to us this morning. Resist Satan, resist sin, resist the flesh, resist the world as such. Run from them and run to Jesus. Today and every moment and forevermore. Draw near to God and he will with a glad heart draw near to you. Just as he did to Zacchaeus. So listen, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've done. From the deplorable crusaders of old to the apathetic confessing Christian that would be wooed by personal pleasures for years, draw near. Draw near to the Lord. There's plenty of room for you at the foot of the cross. Plenty of room for you to come. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he with me. Just as he did with Zacchaeus. He can do it with you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And you say, well, how do I do that, Nathan? How do I do that? Well, first, by asking rightly. Remember what James says? By asking rightly. No more double-mindedness. You go all in. You go all in. In prayer, go to Christ. In prayer, go to Christ. And tell him what you've done. Tell him all of it. He already knows anyway. Tell him all of it. Don't hide anything from it. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy turn to gloom. That is, turn from the pride of life, from your own personal pleasures, and turn to the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Plead the promises of his blood on your behalf to be forgiven. Plead his righteousness to make you clean. Plead his purity to make you pure because you know you can't be pure in and of yourself. Go to him and he'll give it to you. And then know the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And then go tell one of his children that that's what you've done. Go tell a Christian. Talk to me. Talk to the person sitting next to you. There's a lot of Christians in this room that would love to talk to you about that. Let us know how we can help you get home to heaven. Resist fleeting pleasures. Draw near to pleasures forevermore. And for the rest of us, the call of God upon our lives is the same. Resist fleeting pleasures and draw near to God so that you might taste again the forever pleasure of Christ and his kingdom. Listen, Jesus doesn't ask for 10% of your life. He asks for all of it. That's what he gave to you. That's what he rightly asks in response. Jesus is the bridegroom, right? You wouldn't want a spouse to give you 10% or 20% or 50%. You would want him to give it all as you give all to them. That's what Jesus has done for you. Give him it all. And you can know, you can trust him. You come, you give him all of it. He will Meet you. He'll draw near to you. He'll give you grace. He'll give you joy forevermore. And so wherever we have been 
tempted to believe that life sold out for Christ is somehow less than a pleasure-filled life, wherever we've been believing the evil one that says that the for, forbidden fruit always is tasting better and be, have more joy, wherever we've been believing that, let all of us also humble ourselves and draw near to God, knowing that he will draw near to us. Instead of giving, instead we, we give full tilt to Christ. No more earthly pleasures. We're living for them. We renew our commitment to devote the whole of our lives, knowing that Jesus is worth it. That our neighbor is worth it. Helping them walk through the pain, the difficulty to get home to is worth it. Because he's worth it. We've tasted enough of that grace to know that he's worth it. Humble yourselves before the Lord in prayer. Now. Now. And know that he will gladly exalt you. Isn't that amazing? He takes broken, jacked up folks like us. Like me. And says, I'll make a home with you. For all of the ways that we have been double-minded and adulterous and friends to the world. Living in our own selfish passions. He intends to exalt you as you come to him in faith. Jesus promised, in my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, he says, why else would he have told us that he goes to prepare a place for us? And if he goes to prepare a place for you, he will come again. He will, that is, draw near to you again in bodily form. And we will be exalted with him forever on a resurrected earth, serving a resurrected Savior with resurrected saints. No more pain, no more difficulty, no more death, no more sin but nothing but resplendent glory that increases for eternity. That's in front of us. As opposed to the fleeting pleasures of this world, which are like cotton candy. They hit our lips. They taste good for a moment and they're gone. Not Christ. Beloved, resist the fleeting pleasures of this world. Draw near to Christ every day in prayer and know that he will exalt you as you seek the pleasure that is to be found in his presence. Remember, he's the fountain of joy. Go and drink of him every moment of the day. Trust him for it. Yes, there are hard days. Yes, there are hard months. There are hard years. Jesus had them. But as he looked at the cross before him, he was mindful of heaven beyond. So must we. He's given us enough of his love that assures us that we can resist the fleeting pleasures, and trust him for forever pleasure. So let's go to him in prayer now and ask him for these things. We're drawing near now, Lord. We're drawing near. I, Nathan Knight, confess as others here confess. We've, we've been living for those personal passions. We're mindful of the quarrels and the fights just in the past week. And at the bottom of them, as we really listen to our spirits, we know that's what was going on. It was more about me than that thing. We know, God, that we are some of us, that some aspects, Lord, I know it's true of me, where I wish I could just be a friend here. I don't want to be an alien. We know that we've believe that Satan had our best interest in mind and we followed him and we shouldn't have. But oh, the joy, God, to know that there's more grace in you than there is sin in us. Oh, the joy to know that if we would but submit our lives to you, we can live in that power of the gospel. We can, we can be made new. We can find exaltation 
that awaits us. And so we draw near, God, and we ask you to meet with us just as you promised you would. We thank you that you're a God so generous. We pray this in Jesus' name.